I have a hard time finding optimism lately. You're one of the few places I turn when I'm feeling really down. I'll oh, just that be means like, so much to me, Bridget. I'll I'm go so to your Twitter feed and be like, I know this will be positive. Here's the, the thing, Bridget. I mean, like, and this is one of the, the strange tensions in my brief political existence. So uh, I ran for president on a very optimistic idea of universal basic income, but it was built on a very negative case, which is, oh, by the way, AI is coming and it's going to blast <laughs> away like a ton of jobs and we already did it to those guys. We're going to do it to you too eventually. Um, so th- there's like a, a real, um, you know, juxtaposition or it's like, mm-hmm. and the other thing is someone said to me, it's like, hey, Yang, you can present some very distressing shit in a matter of fact <laughs> way that doesn't make me, you know, super sad. And I'm like, oh, good. Well, you know, this is um, so the situation right now is awful. Uh, Our political landscape. Terrible, (laughs) like generationally bad. Um, And so it's not like I'm unmindful of these things. I mean, the, the fact is, if I thought that things were going to go well, I would be doing something else. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm very cognizant of just how knee deep in shit we are. And the and the shit's you know threatening to go well above knee level, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but now I'm in a position where maybe I can help, maybe I can contribute something positive. I see a path, and it does consist of what you're describing with this look politically homeless, yeah, like potential energy. Let's just come together, raise our hands, say, look, um, we want something different. Uh, and the forward party is a way to achieve something different. At, at a minimum, it's a way to say, get off my back. I'm not donating to either of your candidates. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make my home over here and try and fight for a process where new parties can emerge. On this week's podcast, a really great and fascinating conversation with the comedian and writer Bridget Fadesi. Bridget has had a journey that you will not believe. I learned so much from her coming up today on Forward. Hey there, Bridget. Hi. Am I walking in? You're walking in. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. You're you're like the mascot for the politically homeless. <laughs> yes, I'm building a giant homeless shelter called the Forward Party. Uh, it's, I mean, heck, we should be um, the majority of the country. <laughs> it's like a very very large homeless shelter. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I saw when you first came out with the book and you were announcing that you were leaving the Democratic Party and kind of moving. You got piled on with I I I left the left I guess um, probably in 2017 is when I got a little bit disillusioned or pushed wherever to the center and the same exact things that they were all saying about you that you're a grifter that <laughs> all the names all of the things and I'm like this happens to every single person who who manages to find their way to independence. Well, Bridget, tell me about your story, because uh, I've heard this from a couple of other people, but um, 
no offense or anything, but like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a political figure. <laughs> and so I feel like if, if you were to go, be like people being mean to you just seems so strange to me. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's um, I I think it was just I mean, they're mean to anybody who really. And I was like you said or implied, not like a big deal at all. It was really just somebody who I was writing for Playboy. I got kind of. I started just seeing things on the left that I started calling out. I'm a comedian. I'm a, I'm a writer. I just was like, I'm not supposed to, you know, be loyal to one side. But I think because so, tell me more. What what were you calling out, Bridget? Like, what what, just, what where did this begin? <laughs> oh, um, it really started in like 2015, 2016. So I was writing a Playboy, but then when. I saw kind of the rise of Trump and a lot of the hypocrisy around the way, particularly women on the left were talking about, you know, Melania and Ivanka just judging their appearance, their clothes. I was like, I thought we weren't supposed to do this. You know, I don't I I think if we if we have principles and don't apply them equally there, I always say, if you don't apply your principles to people who disagree with your principles are garbage and. That was the beginning of the end. And then (laughs) I stumbled into this space, unlike you, who, you know, obviously went into this with intention. I'm very much um, got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars is really the best way to describe it. But I think I represent like the average. I always say I'm a member of the moron majority. I'm like, I was just a worker. I was a waitress trying to make ends meet forever. I I know very much what it's like to have, I think you said in your book, like the boot of that financial insecurity. I still am amazed when I go to my bank account and take out money and there's more money in my bank account still, or even have enough money to be able to take out. I mean, I just was I was living really close to the edge for so long, well into my 30s, being freelance, waiting for people to pay me. I still don't invoice like I have this weird thing where I don't invoice people because it's like my savings, (laughs) even though I have savings now. But it's still this old kind of um, scarcity mentality that I live with. And I think anyone who has been, you know, financially under stress, under duress. And that's why I'm so interested to talk to you because I think I do, I ended up in this space and then I just kind of became a voice for people who were confused, disillusioned, <laughs> and really have no trust in the system, no trust in politicians. A lot of the people who are in my little fantasy community, my subscriber community, they voted for you. You know, they're I think that you are the politician that probably best rep- comes closest to representing that those feelings of frustration with everything. And I don't you know I, the, those invoices are called accounts receivable. You're <laughs> <laughs> like my accounts receivable are my savings account. <laughs> when I need some money, I'm going to I'll some invoice. Money. Yeah, yeah, but it might take 90 days to get it. Um, that, that plan doesn't always go according to the way I would think. But yeah, there's a lot that I was reading your book too. And I'm like, I don't understand anything. It was kind of, I just sometimes feel like even UBI, which I understand the concept of, I'm like, please explain it to me like I'm in kindergarten (laughs) or like I'm in high school and how 
I understand the concept, but I don't necessarily understand how it works in practice. And I think, like you said, we got to see that with the pandemic, you know, people getting these checks. Um, although I still think it's probably going to cause a lot of, you know, debt and whatnot. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. It, I don't know that we can just write checks like that forever, but, um, yeah, that that's one of my big questions is how how does this work? And is there like a cap? Is it like people under a certain does everybody get this no matter what their income is? Under my proposal, everyone who is 18 or over gets a thousand bucks a month, regardless of your circumstances. And uh, we saw versions of it. We're still seeing versions of it. Uh, and it's been by and large great. Uh, the child tax credits helped a lot of people and families who are in tough, tough circumstances. The stimulus and cash relief checks uh, were generally very, very good. Uh, to the extent that we've seen inflation, one of the things I try and walk people through, Bridget, is that the CARES Act uh, authorized $2.2 trillion in savings. It's a big number, whatever. It's like, you know, but the, the thing that um, pe most people don't realize is that 83% of that money did not go to us. Like the stimulus or the cash relief checks were a smidgen of that $2.2 trillion. 83% uh, of it went to banks, airlines, pipes, institutions, just saying like, hey, hey, um, make, make sure your shareholders are good. Make sure uh, your balance sheets look good. Uh, and then people got a bit of a dribble. And then you look up and say, well, there's inflation in the economy. It's because of those checks. It's like, no, no, no. Like the, the, the checks were a very small component of the money that got pumped into the system. Um, so that, that's one aspect that most people don't realize. But I, I do want to uh, return to your arc because I'm just fascinated by it. So you write an article and you're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be mean to Melania or Ivanka because I thought our thing was not judging people based upon uh, their appearances. And then you got a reaction of some kind. Did you write an article? It was an online post? No, I wrote an article. Part of the problem with that was that, again, I stumbled into the, I was like waiting tables, as I mentioned. I was. I came out to LA to be an actress, a, and a comedian, and a writer. And I was out here just grinding and for years and I started, I got a job for Playboy as a sex columnist, which I loved. It was like my dream job. And that was my first introduction to being quote unquote, very online. I was not on, um, I was on Twitter, but I was really just around the comedians and trying to see how they use Twitter and um, then, and used it to kind of practice writing jokes. And then I ended up um, writing this piece. Um, a lot of my audience has heard this story, but I wrote this piece, Women Date Assholes Because You're a Pussy. And it was like just about, I always got this question, why do women date assholes? And and so I, I wrote a piece for Playboy and I thought maybe I would get some grief from, you know, like the right wing or like, and everybody came after me. The men's rights activists came after me and then feminists came after me because I was using terms like real men and I was not prepared for this, like attack from the left. And that was my first introduction into terms like, oh, God, all of it. I mean, I knew nothing, nothing. And I was 35 years old when I stumbled into this. 
but I just wasn't online. I didn't know. Oh, I, I, oh I get this. I get this. So you're I, kind of a visitor to online culture. And then you put out some stuff that was, you know, like a uh, normal person speak. Uh, and then you got attacked for it. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about internalizing patriarchy, toxic masculinity. I had never heard any of these terms. I didn't go to college. I dropped out when I was a freshman. And I wasn't indoctrinated in any in any of those respects. And I was really just, <laughs> it was surprising to me. But then I got swept up in the culture war because I started noticing as I was more online, I started paying more attention to things that I just really hadn't paid attention to ever. I always thought, and I still kind of believe this, my arc has really brought me back to where I started, which is that politics were for rich people or really poor people. Like I wasn't rich. I was just a working class. I felt like I was getting screwed on both ends and that that was just the way it was. I was pretty blue collar and I was, I didn't really pay attention. I was very much just a, a um, I call it factory settings, just pull the lever of whatever you had, you know, what I was raised with. I was raised a very liberal in a liberal family. Like my grandmother is very Kennedy kind of liberal. And so I didn't really think about it. It was like, I say I was like being in a self-driving car. I just kind of, and then I looked up and I was like, I'm not anywhere where I thought I was. And the culture had shifted so much around me that it was very disorienting. And then I started writing um, I wrote a piece the, of Trump's inauguration, actually trying to look at the bright side of his election. Now, people weren't ready for this kind of optimism. <laughs> and it was crazy. I shed just hundreds of followers just for even the title of the piece. And I ended up because I was saying, like, it's exposing everything. Like, he he's horrible for our country, but he's exposing all so many of the things that are broken and wrong. And that was eye opening. And then I ended up writing a piece called High Heel Hypocrisy about exactly what I just was mentioning to you. And I mind you, I was a freelance writer. So some editor reached out and said, hey, we'll take that piece because I said, yeah, I'll write about the hypocrisy on the left, but no one will publish it. Because then I started recognizing things that weren't allowed, like the sacred cows and things that I couldn't say, whether it was in comedy or in the sex column world or just on the left in general. And they, um, it was the Federalist. <laughs> and I knew nothing about the Federalist or what it represented. And so then I posted it on my Facebook and everyone was like, unsubscribe from your Patreon. I mean, it was like a whole thing. I had no idea. So I'm really an idiot that just kept stumbling very publicly into one disaster after another and just trying to write my way through it. And so it, so when this happened and people were like, unsubscribe, unsubscribe, were you like, you know, what the heck is going on here? Or did it pain you or hurt you? Or did you like look up? Yeah. What's like the natural reaction? Yeah. I mean, it was hard because I felt that I was, you know, no one likes rejection. I think this is the hardest thing. And I feel like you weathered it well in terms of the way that when you came out with the forward party and, and I saw a lot of that, obviously, much at a, a, a much greater level being directed at you. <laughs> um, higher, the, yeah, much, higher scale <laughs> visibility. Yeah. And more volume, obviously. And um, you're trending and all this stuff. I see that it's... Um, it's 
I think for me, the hardest thing was recognizing what, when I was being reactive and not going too far. It's easy to become reactive and go and you're like, am I being reactive because I'm being rejected or am I, is this something that that is something that is something very, very powerful, Bridget, that I'm not sure people understand is that if someone pelts you with, you know, whatever, uh, verbal rocks, like, uh, it's very, very natural for you to recoil and then, um, take on a, a, like an adversarial stance toward the pelters, you know what I mean? Right. Like, what the heck are you doing? And they'd be like, oh, you all, like, there's something wrong with you. And then you, you wind up reacting right. to your point. Which um, I understand why people would do that. It's like you said, very natural, which is why I get frustrated, for instance, after the recent Virginia elections, when I was like, countdown to blaming white women, because inevitably... But I'm, I'm, I want to shake that's, all the Democrats. That's, mild, and, that's mildly funny, <laughs> too. <laughs> I want to shake the Democrats and be like, this isn't helpful. You know, you if you want to win, okay, you can blame them. But that's still, you're still putting people in a position where they're, where they're going to feel defensive, you know, <laughs> like, like F you. It's hard. And I don't know that everyone has the self-awareness to like pause and be like, am I being reactive? And just for the sake of being reactive? this podcast is sponsored by helix sleep i've always been a mattress guy because i figured if i'm gonna do something for up to eight hours maybe i should do it right and helix sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high-quality mattress... It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So then in the arc, you I ended up getting asked because the right loves it when there's like a, an, an apostate. Yes. And they'll be like, come to us. And they were the only people who were asking me to talk. And I still wanted to get out and say what I had to say. But then it became this thing of being hyper aware of the fact that I might be getting weaponized, you know, you use being used essentially like a useful idiot. And um, I mean, I could tell so many stories. I was in a bathtub in Washington, D.C., just crying after I did this. I did an interview that was great because I was a former heroin addict and I was like, I will talk to anybody about recovery. And I actually think the right does not benefit from a lot of these kinds of conversations because they're such a reactive 
media ecosystem that they're not necessarily doing like a lot of mental health and um, wellness kind of pieces at, on their websites. They're just not exposed to as much of it as you are on the left in our in the, in that ecosystem. And so I was I went on um, I went on a podcast, and then that night. Uh, there was like a whole thing in New York with the Proud Boys. And I was just like, am I a part of the problem? <laughs> you know, like, uh, because a lot of the things people would accuse me of is like, you're carrying water for Nazis. You're, hel- you're only helping the right wing. You're only helping these fascists. And I, I didn't know enough about anything to know that that might not be true. I, I was always questioning, is this true? So I don't know. Did you ever have any doubt when you when you were kind of in this? I mean, I'm curious, like, what led you to your what is your arc? Oh, I'd be very happy to share my arc, Bridget. So uh, I grew up in uh, upstate New York and then a suburb of New York City. I went to school in New England, went to a very liberal school uh, and voted for Clinton the second time bill, that is, <laughs> you know, no, I'm in my forties. I've uh, been living in New York city for uh, my adult life. And so being a Democrat seemed very natural, uh, was not that involved. My exposure to politics was that I started getting awards during the Obama administration, um, started meeting senators and members of Congress and the president and the former president and some other people as I got cooler, more or less. Like I started a nonprofit that did good work. And so as I got cooler, I got invited to cool stuff. And so I meet these political figures. And I will admit to you that one of the vibes I caught was like, okay, these people are not really going to change anything that important. Like they're, they're just kind of shaking my hand, hanging out, congratulating, doing uh, fundraisers and press junkets. And like, this is not the crew that's going to somehow like take the ship and turn it 90 degrees. Right. That's that's not in the cards. Uh, And then Trump won in 2016. And I came to a full stop and thought, wow, this was, uh, this was to me a giant uh, cry of actually either uh, anger or anguish, you know, it's like either pain or anger. Uh, and I'd spent six and a half years working in the Midwest and the South. I'd seen all these communities that had disintegrated, frankly, in the aftermath of getting rid of manufacturing jobs. There are some in New England too, like in Northern New Hampshire. And yeah. Different, different Upstate New York. England. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I thought, well, I need to try and explain this to people. And I, wrote a book, The War on Normal People, mm-hmm. and thought, uh, well, I will run for president on this set of ideas. And I figured even if I flopped, I would still advance uh, universal basic income and some other big ideas. I would explain the fourth industrial revolution to people. You and I were both on the Joe Rogan podcast, so that was like a big opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. And I was running as a Democrat. I met thousands of Democrats. I thought I was a Democrat. But the, the strange part is that as I was running – Um, I started to feel like maybe I'm not like a fit for this party. Like there, there were, um, there were some rituals going on where I would speak to a democratic group and I would speak in a way that I think, which is, Hey guys, we, 
uh, automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs. And now 30% of your malls and retail stores are going to close. And eventually we're going to automate the cars and trucks. And it's all, you know, just going to get worse and worse. Uh, and uh, because I wasn't speaking a political language, people had no idea what to do. It'd be like this kind of polite applause, be like, and I have no idea what, like how to react to what this Asian guy is saying. <laughs> because, I, because I wasn't presenting it in political speak. Uh, and political consultants would say to me like, hey, you really need to politic it up some. Right. Um, so I ended up stumbling into this political language that I thought was the democratic language, but it turns out it was not the democratic language. Uh, and then after my presidential campaign ended, I wrote a book uh, forward that tried to figure out why shit's not working. Oh, thank you, Bridget. I appreciate it. Did, did you enjoy the book? I did. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, I'm like the, the meat and potatoes of it. I still am trying to get my mind around. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm not like an economist. And so a lot of the stuff in the middle, I, I have to like pause and look things up. And, um, but I love the beginning of your story. And I love to the end where you kind of outline what the forward party is about and uh, just the things that need to be fixed. And I actually like really appreciate how practical it is and, and, and how meat and potatoes it is, even if sometimes I feel like I'm an idiot. Well, you're, you're definitely not an idiot. It must be, you know, that the middle is poorly written. <laughs> no, it's not poorly <laughs> written. It's, it's just more um, technical stuff about the, the economy. And I'm just not it's it, that stuff just doesn't come naturally to me. You know, that understanding how it all works does not always come it's not my second nature. <laughs> well, well, the big discovery I made when I was writing this book, Bridget, was that shit is not going to work, uh, that the duopoly is not designed to solve problems. It's designed to anger us and inflame us and right. turn us against each other. And that's where billions and billions of dollars of political money and media incentives and social media and the rest of it will, will drive us. Uh, and so imagine running for president and then coming to the conclusion that, OK, this system is setting us up to devolve and turn on each other and wind up in Civil War 2.0. Uh, so what is a reasonable way out? And to me, the reasonable way out would be to try and break up the duopoly and say that we need certainly more than two parties, like two parties makes no sense at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that you couldn't make that argument as a member of one party or the other. So then I naturally concluded, OK, I'm going to leave the Democratic Party and become an independent and then start a third party movement that will try and shift our primary system to closed party primaries, which, by the way, disenfranchises like 80 percent of Americans. Effectively. Yes. Like if you're in California and you're a Republican, you might as well just forget about it. Not show in most of the place. There, there are parts of California where you can compete, but there are other parts where it's a waste of your time. I'm in New York, and if you're an independent or Republican, waste of your time. Honestly, right. you know, like that, like that. Democrats run this um, this town. So I concluded that okay, I need oh that we need to change the dynamic. And if you were to make a list of people that would have a shot at changing the dynamic, I'm somewhere on that list. Um, so let me present to my country the case that this duopoly is going to grind us up and and destroy us and turn us against each other and the rest of it. I, uh, and this is ridiculous, Bridget, because I've made this mistake, gosh, like any number of times now, 
I did not expect there to be that much of a reaction. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you should have consulted me. <laughs> yeah, I definitely should have. <laughs> I, the, I the, could have warned you. <laughs> though, though, when the reaction was coming out, um, I did not feel bad about it. Like it, it kind of verified some of my uh, thoughts where I thought, okay, this country is really badly polarized. 42% of Americans think the other side is evil or they're mortal enemies. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster over time. And then when I said publicly, hey, I'm leaving the Democratic Party to become an independent, uh, getting attacked made me feel like, okay, then I, you know, I was correct. Right. <laughs> we're, we're, we're polarized. And, you know, I, I tried not to take anything people were um, slinging at me personally. I was just like, okay, this is just the polarization talking. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and if you look at it too, I thought I was relatively benign about it. Like my statement uh, upon leaving the Democratic Party was not like, oh, you know, Democrats suck, this suck. It was just like, look, like I think this is a better way I can be of value and can serve. And I, I think we need a different dynamic. I thought it was like so innocuous, but right. the substance of it was completely lost, you know, and people would just like attack it on, I don't know, like for whatever reason. Um, it, it was, it was um, but it, it was encouraging in its own way. And then I did get some calls and texts from people that I really admire and respect who would say, hey, like, you know, welcome, the water's warm right. <laughs> here in independent land. And uh, I have really enjoyed being an independent these past two months. I genuinely feel like you might have felt this too. And I tried to explain this to, to folks earlier, but like you feel like uh, like a set of glasses has come off your face and then you see things differently. Like I underestimated also the impact of just filling out a form and changing my voter registration from Democrat to independent. I was like, yeah. okay, I need to do this because <laughs> it's just like a formality. But then when I did it, all of a sudden, my mindset shifted, my reading of news shifted. Um, like instead of thinking of it as us, I thought of as them. Um, and so when, you know, Democrats lost in Virginia, I wasn't like we lost. It was like, oh, they lost. <laughs> right. <laughs> And it's been uplifting. It's been enlightening. I genuinely think I see things more clearly now than I did uh, 10 weeks ago just because of that paperwork. It's wild. It's bananas. Wow. Yeah, that I think there's, well, one of my questions that came up right at the beginning of your arc, did you, did you, were you surprised by Trump's win? I was surprised by Trump's win because I'm a numbers guy. And so when you looked at the numbers, according to all the surveys, like Hillary wins by a few points and life right. goes on. Uh, you know, I, I supported Bernie in the primary and then um, voted for Hillary in the general. So I was like, OK, Hillary wins. Life goes on. Um, I was surprised. Yes. Were you? I wasn't. <laughs> I kept telling everybody that he was going to win out here, which did not make me popular right away. And I even lost friends for suggesting that he was going to win. But I remember I went home. And I was in my very East Coast um, family and a couple of people mentioned that I remember someone sat down with me and they I thought they were joking when they said they were voting for Trump. And then they sat down with me and they were like, I'm just so fucking sick of the left talking down to me. And that stuck out so much. And this was right. I had just been in London and, and Ireland on the heels of Brexit, which I was obsessed with. I was I was like, this is this is happening here too. this kind of anger and these feelings of being left behind or 
being um, the resentment, that kind of resentment vote. And when I started hearing that, even in places that were very liberal and from family members that I was shocked to hear it from, I was I went came back to L.A. and I'm like, we're missing something, you know, something big. And then just seeing the temperature, I, I moved a lot as a as a teenager and preteen every year and a half. So I spent a good part of my middle school and high school in Minnesota and the Midwest. And I just have still a lot of friends from the Midwest. So good for some of my best friends and family members and just seeing how many were really excited about Trump and kind of openly excited for that change. Just all of that information, even though it was anecdotal put together, I just felt like we weren't, none of it was being represented. And I'm like, no one's going to be honest. We're not creating any kind of ecosystem where people can be honest about how they actually feel, because if they were, they'd be called a Nazi or they'd be called a white supremacist. So why would anybody be honest? They're just going to go and vote the way they want to vote and not tell anyone because it was already causing so much stress in the families. And I see this now playing out like everything's been so politicized and now with COVID, and you you mentioned this too in your book, and I loved that chapter, just about how it's hurt, you know, the strain that it's put on families within families, people who are pro-vaccine, people who don't want to get it. There's there, people being left out of family events. I read some article the other day that one in four Americans or something has suffered some kind of falling out with a family member, and it's causing them obvious distress. And that's sad to me. You know, I grew up in a big, huge family where everybody was all over the political spectrum. I have a communist uncle in Germany and my grandparents were very clear about like, you don't. Sure, the cops came to a lot of drunken (laughs) family arguments, but they were very clear that you don't let that, you know, mess with family like that just isn't something you let come between you. So seeing that. Um, already happening in 2015 was really unsettling. And I think that process has really just only got worse from what I, I was hoping it would get better with Biden, but it just seems like it's actually got worse. <laughs> it's not getting better. <laughs> I, I'm going to share something um, that I heard earlier this week. I talked to a woman who regularly polls voters Um, And has been pulling them for the last five years. Um, And when a Trump voter talked to her in 2016, they would say something like, look, I've got a problem with Trump. Like, I don't love some of the things he says and does, but I just can't stand Hillary and I'm I'm voting for Trump. It was like a kind of like I'm voting for Trump, but I'm just explaining it away by saying that, like, this is a vote against the other side. And uh, with each successive focus group over time, now they don't hide anything. They're like, like love Trump, hate the others. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they have kind of gone in for it. There's like no sheepishness. Right. Uh, like anymore. Or like the, the desire to keep it to yourself, the way you're describing, like is weaker. You know, yeah. like they, they don't lie to pollsters anymore in that way. I wrote this piece that went viral, even though all these publishers were telling me this audience doesn't exist. 
but it was the battle cry of the politically homeless. And I think I wrote this in 2017 or 2018 and talking about how there, I felt this authoritarian creep coming from both sides. Nobody likes to hear this, but I was feeling it on the left around speech, you know, regulation and what you could and couldn't say and all of that. And then on the right, obviously, there's just um, the kind of despotic attitude of Trump at the time. And the, the cult of personality around him is terrifying to me, just that demanding fealty from everyone around you. And so those two kind of forces really are what pushed me to the middle more than anything. And I started an email address, I am politically homeless at gmail.com and told people to kind of write me their story. I got thousands of emails from people and telling me their story of transition. Now, whether it was from the right to the left, from the left to the right, some anarchist who became radicalized into voting, somebody who hadn't voted. It was so many fascinating stories from all types of people, all walks of life. And then in 2020, I kind of circled back and had people write me right before the election about how they were feeling. Were they hiding their vote from their spouse? And the thing that struck me the most was the people in 2016 who were maybe reluctant or sheepish, as you mentioned, voters of Trump were all in on Trump or they regretted not voting for Trump in 2016. There was I had so many hundreds of emails of people who were saying um, exactly what you're mentioning. And then there were people who were on the other side who had been voted for Trump and thought that he could like hold it together and not be Trump. And we're so disgusted by him that they're like, I'm voting blue all the way down. I don't care. So it was interesting. I think every, and I just had a really interesting discussion with um, this guy, Jesse Morton about radicalization and hyperpolarization. And we were talking about how everyone's being radicalized. Everyone. Yep. Yeah. And increasingly for sure. Yeah. So uh, how, how did your, I mean, did you have any personal loss from your, announcement that you are leaving the Democratic Party? Did you personal loss in terms of relationships and friends and people? Or did it not really affect you that much? I have many, many friends who are avid Democrats, as you'd imagine, because, you know, I've traveled the country for the last number of years running for president uh, and mayor as a Democrat each time. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, put a cramp in a lot of those relationships. Uh, I will say, though, that I see those relationships as um, kind of a hybrid between personal and professional. Mm -hmm. you know, like, are, are there friends of mine who I consider friends who called me and said, hey, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore? Like, no, I haven't really gotten that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, like, you haven't been disowned or anything? <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly my parents could give a shit. I mean, yeah. but, you know, I actually went to my parents um, because I, I talked about in the book how I'm the son of immigrants and I have no idea what my parents thought about American politics. So I actually went to my parents was like, hey, uh, my mom, um, hey, mom, did you like vote? <laughs> 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 and, and please don't judge my mom. But the answer was no. She was yeah. like, I didn't really understand American politics. I came here and, you know, like uh, um, just kept my head down. Um, so. Um, so my my friends. Uh, I think a lot of people within the Democratic Party that knew me, know me, um, don't consider me like a, you know, an asshole. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, Yang's doing something that maybe I don't agree with on this one, um, but we'll see where it goes. That there is this massive fear that 
the reason why I started the forward party was so I could run for president in 2024 and that a lot of Democrats fear that I would hive off more Democratic voters than Republican voters. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a concern that, you know, I'm just driven by naked personal ambition, right. <laughs> which I mean, I laugh at because, uh, you know, like certainly um, like if my goal was to, you know, achieve uh, like the um, the most political support I could, like uh, one of the things you experienced too, and I joke about this, is like no one puts themselves into the equivalent of the political wilderness out of some, you know what I mean? Out of yeah. some like self grandiosity, <laughs> like it's, this is really going to be the thing, you know, it, uh, because, uh, you know, immediately you, you wind up, um, in like, uh, uh, zone where you don't have like this infrastructure. And this yeah. is one thing that I'm very interested in working on because I think the country needs it very badly. And I dare say that you're, you're already kind of a forerunner to this, Bridget. Like you, with, you're the prototype without even knowing it. <laughs> oh, uh, great. <laughs> that, that there should be some independent media. Uh, yes. That we need our own set of voices, set of people, in part for all the people that reached out to you in your I am politically homeless at Gmail, uh, to let them know that they're not alone and they're not insane. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the the most inspiring thing over the past couple of years for me has been seeing a lot of people pivoting into that space. The Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss, a lot of the people who were maybe of the left or in left wing media kind of shaking off that brand and and coming to be more independent, labeling themselves independent. I think that a lot of people resonate the problem that I have and I still haven't been able to figure it out is how do you galvanize that energy? Because yep. there's so much energy, but so much potential energy, for so sure. much potential energy. And it's also just a group of people who I think feel so disillusioned and apathetic, which was something that I loved about your campaign is that you made me feel optimistic. You know, most politicians to me are so deeply cynical. I mean, I, I find I find like Kamala, for example, to be so phony, it's offensive. <laughs> and and it's just the way I react to her on a natural just it like effect, affects me viscerally. Just so, and I think Trump, you know, I always used to say people are so hungry for authenticity, they'll choose like an authentic asshole over somebody who they feel is just a, a Hillary kind of Hoover, a phony political actor. Yeah. And you broke through that. And I know you mentioned a lot of the kind of moments you had, which I loved. I loved that, that first section of your book, that your story, because I love the stories and seeing you create all of that energy um, was exciting. And it's, it's just, how do you, how do you break through? I think at the end of the day, what happens is people want to want that, but then they get scared and they retreat to one side or the other because they feel like it's hopeless. And they're, you know, I, I got to I told everybody this was the other time I got absolutely buried was at the election. I was like, I'm not voting, I'm not voting for anyone, <laughs> not for the two major parties. <laughs> and people on both sides accused me of throwing the election for whatever the, you know, whatever side they were on. 
Like you your get, one vote in California was going to be the yeah, difference Yeah, like maker. it even mattered. Um, which, by the way, is but they were just like, you shouldn't be saying this and even putting this message out there. And I think people who even dare to say I'm voting independent get so piled on by both sides. I talked sides. to a, a woman who's a, a media figure who just said like, hey, I'm voting third party and just got piled on. Oh, like, yeah. Mercilessly. It's not even worth it to, to, to say it. And so people, I don't feel like... That's what I mean. How do you galvanize all this potential energy if people are scared to even stand in that space and admit that they're there because it's, yes. you take or, so much Or crap. this is the other part of it, uh, Bridget, is that they're rational and paying attention to politics is depressing. Right. So the rational thing to do is just be like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to ignore it. And if I'm going to vote third party or not vote, I'm not going to talk about it. Right. <laughs> like th- th- this is a very uh, rational set of moves. Uh, and and so the challenge and I, I, I tell jokes about this sometimes. It's like the challenge is to get people to join who are by the na- their nature are not naturally joiners. Right. <laughs> right. I always, that's my Twitter bio is my tribe is tribeless. You know, it's like, how do you how do you create? A, a kind of center out of something that's kind of centerless. Then, and, and that is by nature, a lot of these independents, they are by definition independent. So, and it's hard to, I think, to capture, and you see this within libertarianism. There's like such a big umbrella of who is captured under the libertarian un- umbrella. And there's the more right-leaning folks and the more left-leaning folks and the anarchists and I think within this kind of politically homeless disillusioned, you have people who have wandered in from the right, but they still on principle or even maybe on social things might lean more right. And then you have people from the left. And if it comes down to single issues where where just somebody in the middle, how do you even manage to bridge that divide even within such a disparate group of people? Yeah, the, the, the problem you're to describing has been called the mushy middle Mm. is that how do you create a coherent party out of the mushy middle one group of people that have reached out to me since i started the forward party that i've been encouraged by is military veterans and ex-law enforcement who are not into trump uh, but who are not democrats and they're looking around saying okay and a number of them have reached out to me and said i've been waiting for something like the forward party thank you and that made me really glad uh, there are a couple of consistent strains of uh, political ideology that are attracted to this kind of movement. Um, people who are principled, patriotic, uh, don't think that either party is working uh, right now. I love the people that I've made common cause with this last number of weeks, months. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours, Bridget, just for uh, this conversation, Uh, but there there is something um, profound about people who've kind of taken off the blue hat or the red hat uh, and then looked around and said, oh, and in many cases, by the way, have to walk through a lot of adversity or verbal pummeling. (laughs) And and then that shapes you in a particular way. You're like, wait, what happened? And, And then you're on the other side of it. It's a little bit like high school. (laughs) It's a lot like high school. Yeah, we we are very much um, a tribal 
species, really. It's not just Amer- Americans. Have you read anything by Jonathan Haidt? He wrote yeah, of a, course. A couple of books. He's been yeah. on the podcast. It oh, was that, fascinating. That, yeah, that that's amazing. So John's yeah. a friend. And so here was my shot at it, Bridget, and we'll see if it works. Um, so one of the lessons in my book was that all politics is tribal. And I took that from John. I took that from my own experience. And so you have the blue team and the red team and they get very mad. Like if, if you, <laughs> you know, like seem like you're helping the other team or, uh, or unaligned. And so what I, I think we need is we need more tribes. Mm. Um, we need a new tribe. I have proposed the forward tribe, uh, and the ideas behind the forward tribe are around positivity, unity, solving problems, fellowship, grace and tolerance, agreeing to disagree, uh, and um, trying to call, frankly, evil on a system that is making people hate each other. Yeah. It's like that, that any system that is causing widespread hate is bad. (laughs) And and that's where we are now. Uh, You know, like uh, the average American, I mean, shit, like people on Twitter are saying things every day that like no sane person would say in real life. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's crazy. You're like, this is like, you know, it's not not a healthy environment. Um, And they feel very, uh, very virtuous in doing it. Like, yes. you know, they, they, they feel like they're fighting for something. Um, so I was joking with someone on TV. It's like, I want to be like, like the soothing wet blanket for the country. Uh, <laughs> like I've set my, my voice on soothing. Um, so th- this is the hope for the forward tribe is that we can be the sense talkers to the rest of the country um, and give people a banner that they can, you know, wave uh and feel good about do you have a lot of bernie bro supporters i'm not sure to be honest with you yeah um like uh, certainly there was a lot of overlap between the yang yang and and bernie bros i haven't really gotten a sense of um whether the forward party consists of uh the same group or a a different group um now we'll we'll find out over time i hope so if you're a bernie bro listening to this yang loves you yang was a bernie bro 2016 (laughs) Yeah, I think that that it's interesting, too, because you seem to strike chords with, you know, UBI and maybe an idea of more socialism. And also, even though that's a dirty word or whatever, but it it has this kind of feel about more stronger social networks and, and help and support. And also, I love that you don't abandon patriotism because that was one of the things that kind of pushed me center. I'm like, I don't hate this country. I've traveled all over the world. And every time I come back to America for all of its flaws, I'm like, I am so lucky to live in this country. I really was lucky to be born here. I always say I think America's biggest problem is that Americans don't get out of America enough. They just don't see. And I don't mean like your your college trip to Europe. I mean, like travel, put a backpack on, go see parts of the world that are hard and and ride a bus through the south of India. Maybe don't do that, but I did that. And see see other places and how the opportunity that we have. I married, my first marriage was to a guy from Belarus. And so I was exposed firsthand to 
just what he went through in his childhood, what he had to do. He came to America knowing no English and managed to like build a whole life. I'm like, where else can you do that? You know, and, and get a degree and have multiple properties now and ex two ex-wives. Like, this is an American dream. Um, you did it, Belarusian. <laughs> you married two American women. You did it. Um, probably not going on number three for all I know. And it, it it's just... I don't know. I, I really, I can't, my grandparents were very patriotic. My grandfather fought in World War II. They were in Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. It, it, they just grew, we were grown up with an enormous sense of gratitude for the country that we lived in. And so, yes, obviously we have our flaws and I'm grateful that you don't kind of throw that baby out with the bathwater because I think on the left, there's a lot of pressure to do that. Oh, gosh, no. I mean, I'm the child of immigrants and my parents came here for a better life for me and my brother primarily. And it's worked. Uh, and I'm a parent now. And like I, I want my kids to grow up in a country that they're excited about. So I, I love this country dearly. I think that should be the starting point, really. That yeah. could be one aspect of the forward party. That's look, we have problems for sure. And oh, by the way, one of the problems is we have this messed up duopoly that's you know like turning us against each other uh, but you have to appreciate everything that makes this country uh, special because even with all of our problems there are still hundreds of millions of people that would uh, move here in the blink of an eye if they had a chance What was it about the New York race that you ran that felt so different about your um, presidential campaign to me? Just observing oh. it. Oh, no, they, they were very different. I mean, my presidential campaign, uh, it was a race against uh, being ignored. And right. so much of it was born of me personally. Like every idea, every policy. I'd written the book before I was a public figure, you know, like that there was something very organic and natural and light about it. And then the New York mayoral race, uh, I came in as a front runner and a national figure. And so the entire thing was uh, just surviving uh, press attacks every single day. So there, there wasn't a lot of, <laughs> there, there was a lot of positivity to be had. It was yeah. also winter for a lot of it. It was COVID. Yeah. Um, I, I w- there weren't in-person events for a lot of it. So like the way you connect with people was all through this uh, funhouse mirror of the press. Uh, so that, it was a very different dynamic and a different energy. And the, the truth of it is that New York City at the time uh, was really hurting. Yeah. You know, it's like if you imagine New York City COVID winter 2021 pre-vaccines, I mean, that that was the context of the race. Yeah, that was a dark time in that city. And it felt um, it definitely felt like the press was very um, mean to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like looking for the word. I know. I'll settle on mean. <laughs> I'll settle on mean. Um, they were not charitable, really. It seemed like the attacks were more personal. It felt. It just felt different. Although you do say in in your book, and it was one of my questions that I had that the national media initially presented you as the internet candidate, which I kind of understand or the preferred candidate of the alt-right. Why do you think that was, that they presented you that way? 
I do not know to this day. Um, I think there were a couple of uh, maybe forums or something where some stuff bubbled up from, um, but uh, it was a very strange characterization. And um, well, yeah, like I was mystified by it. I didn't take it very seriously because I just thought it was so weird <laughs> that, my, that my team um, yeah. was like, oh, you know, you should really... Uh, you know, try and get in front of this. And I was like, yeah, no one's going to think that. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. Do you think that the problems, I mean, I, I feel like I get, I have, I have a hard time finding optimism lately. You're one of the few places I turn when I'm feeling really down. I'll just oh, that be means like, so much to me, Bridget. I'm I'll so go glad. to your Twitter feed and be like, I know this will be positive. <laughs> Even if it's a lie, no. <laughs> Even if his optimism is, is uh, you oh, know, I'm, I, I've got this very sullen look on my face while I'm crafting those optimistic tweets. I'm like, <laughs> what bullshit am I going to put out into the Twitter sphere now? No, I don't mean that, that you're lying. I mean, even if the, that I'm lying to myself, that it's there's oh, well, reason to be optimistic. Well, here's the, the thing, Bridget. I mean, like, and this is one of the the strange tensions in my brief political existence. So uh, I ran for president on a very optimistic idea of universal basic income, but it was built on a very negative case, which is, oh, by the way, AI is coming and it's going to blast <laughs> away like a ton of jobs. And we already did it to those guys. We're going to do it to you too, eventually. Um, so th there's like a, a real, um, you know, juxtaposition or it's like, mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is someone said to me, it's like, hey, Yang, you can present some very distressing shit in a matter of fact <laughs> way that doesn't make me, you know, super sad. And I'm like, oh, good. Well, you know, this is um, so the situation right now is awful. Uh, our political landscape. Terrible, <laughs> like generationally bad. Um, and so it, it's not like I'm unmindful of these things. I mean, the, the fact is, if I thought that things were going to go well, I would be doing something else. Right. You know what I mean, like, so I'm very cognizant of just how knee deep in shit we are. And the and the shit's you know threatening to go well above me level, <laughs> like, right? But but now I'm in a position where maybe I can help. Maybe I can contribute something positive. I see a path, and it does consist of what you're describing with this. Look, politically homeless, yeah, like potential energy. Let's just come together, raise our hands, say, look, um, we want something different. Uh, and the forward party is a way to achieve something different. At, at a minimum, it's a way to say, get off my back. I'm not donating to either of your candidates. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make my home over here and try and fight for a process where new parties can emerge. Do you, is, does anything make you reconsider UBI? Would anything make you reconsider? Like did the, the labor market's reaction to extended payouts over the pandemic, did the, any of that make you reconsider it, or is there anything that would make you reconsider it? Uh, I, I'm an evidence-driven uh, guy, so you know, like I'm always open to new information. Uh, I do think, though, that you have to segment the cash relief into different buckets. Uh, the child tax credit, pure good. You know, 442 economists are like, we should do this forever. Yeah. The cash relief checks, in my opinion, good. You know, mm -hmm. like helped bail a lot of people out. The part that we can all take legitimate issue with, in my opinion, was the enhanced unemployment benefits. Right. Because in those situations, we actually tied the money 
to not having a job and not working. Right. And I talked to a number of people who said, look, I'm getting paid 85% of what I was going to get paid if I was working. So I'm not going to look for a job until these benefits run out. Yeah. And I looked at that and said, makes perfect sense. You know, yeah. like we, we, we should not be tying money to things that disincentivize someone um, taking a job if that's what they want. And oh, by the way, this predates uh, the pandemic. When I was in Iowa talking to a waitress, she would say to me, look, I want to work part time, but if I do, it's going to reduce my benefits. Like right. there, there are so many people that are in versions of that situation all the time because our programs are structured very, very punitively and poorly. Yeah. Uh, you know, like anyone who looked at that would be like, that woman should work part time and I don't care if she keeps getting her money. Like like the the, the money is not being channeled in the right ways. One of the questions my audience had for you, I did a little asking questions within my community and a lot of stuff about UBI, obviously, but one that I loved was, um, please ask what financial literacy programs he recommends for the general public. Without this knowledge, no amount of guaranteed income produces outcomes promised from UBI. Would the idea of UBI, or if you got UBI, would it come with some kind of financial literacy or or even any, and I mean, I learned nothing about any of this when I was growing up. I learned everything the hard way. I went bankrupt when I was 27 because I started my company and knew nothing. And I didn't know anything about budgeting money or any, and I had no financial literacy. I'm still, I still feel like I, I have like a, a very. Come on, you have the accounts receivable 90 day savings account. <laughs> I still revolving. have, I still have like that. The, I, I always joke that I'm basically still like a high schooler. I'm just paying rent now. <laughs> I'm like a, almost, almost a grown up, almost. But I'm not alone, you know, that, that oh, no. idea of like rich dad, poor dad is so true. I had so many rich friends and they were talking about money and discussing stocks and all of these things when, when I was an, a teenager, you know, they were having these conversations about this stuff and they were talking to their parents about it. And I never, I didn't learn any of that stuff. But so with, we, with we should money, be teaching financial it, literacy at the grade school level, mm -hmm. um, the, the, um, the least we can do is give them some fake money and, and then have them do various things and then reward people who do something, you know, prudent with the fake money. Ideally, you'd have some real money. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things I remember vividly about being a teenager is that, you know, someone tried to teach me some shit about money and it just went in one year, out, one out the other until I actually had some real money, which was, you know, like a number of years later. And then it was like, what do I do? And so I remember I bought some style like, like Citibank or Verizon, and then it went down, you know, 10 bucks or 20 bucks. <laughs> it was like a free trade or something. You know, uh -huh. It's like one of those starter accounts. <laughs> and then, um, and then it going up or down $20 was, was hypnotizing. And I would just like sit there and like watch it. Um, so <laughs> we need to try and get people more exposure, uh, earlier, um, along those lines. And I love rich dad, poor dad as a book. Uh, you know, the main principle of that book is just pay yourself first. And you think, oh, what the hell does that mean? And you're like, oh, aren't I supposed to pay down this, pay down that? Like the big principle of paying yourself first, I thought it's really powerful. I mean, hell, I think that book sold 10 gazillion copies yeah. based upon that, that, that one thing. Um, good job, Asian dude. Oh, <laughs> 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 no, it's like, you know, there's as an, as an Asian author. I think his name's Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so we should 100% be teaching people at the high school level. My vision, Bridget, was everyone gets taught financial literacy in high school and then you start getting a basic income 
uh, your senior year is when most people turn 18. Oh, by the way, we also send you to another part of the country for a month and live with another family so you have a little bit of exposure and you don't think of people in another area as, uh, you like know. Flyover like flyover country, et cetera. Yeah, or <laughs> coastal elites. Than you. It's like, oh, I actually spent time there and they were like perfectly nice. Um, uh, and then you have some real money, a couple bucks to rub together, and then any lesson I try and teach you will become real very quickly. That was the ideal progression for me. Uh, can we still pull that off? I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to try. One of the other questions I liked, and it's, this goes back to your point about how there's so many things that are disincentives in in the way our system is structured. What are ways in which we can improve, improve social safety nets provided by the government? For instance, if someone has SSIDI, you can't own certain types of property, and this could cause problems for disabled people who want to do something like own an affordable home but are still in need of that supplemental income. How would UBI differ from what we already have, and how would it be similar? So the, the benefit systems that we have right now are difficult to access. They're punitive. They act like they don't trust you at all. And the people that I know who are receiving these benefits live in fear of losing them because they're going to screw up a filing or do something wrong. There was a woman who was getting disability benefits who was afraid to volunteer at her church because uh, she was... Uh, afraid someone was going to see her volunteer and then say you're able-bodied and then take oh, her wow. disability away. I know. I mean, like that, that, that's the kind of thing that people live with. Right. Um, so my, in my ideal world, we would not be attaching negative conditions to any of these payments. If you're getting uh, social security disability, like I actually did not know you couldn't own something. That's horrifying to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that would make no sense at all. But by the way, we have this array of bureaucratic requirements and then an army of people kind of overlooking them. And then millions of Americans being subject to these arcane rules. And then you have to go and, and you like stand in line and go to these offices. It's the worst, you know, it, it, it's because we're programmed for scarcity and mistrust mm -hmm. and punishing people who quote unquote need help. Um, like it, we need to reverse that and say, look, you're an American, you're a citizen, we're wealthy, here's a thousand bucks, uh, you know, don't sweat it. <laughs> and, and oh, by the way, we believe in you and we trust you. And then you can turn to your kids and be like, hey, you're an American, it's fucking awesome. You know, you're getting money when, when you're a senior, uh, you know, maybe take a year, uh, learn a few lessons, and then, you know, maybe go to college if you want, or don't go to college, uh, you know, maybe like learn a trade, do something else. Like we, we shouldn't be presenting college is the end-all be-all because it's really not. Do you worry that giving people money, as you were mentioning, tying kind of the unemployment that people were getting, and we saw this in California out here as well, will it her, I mean, I've been traveling a lot and seeing these labor shortages like in, in real time. Um, do you worry that if people get the UBI that we'll, we'll have like a society that just kind of quits working? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think a thousand bucks a month is like, uh, you know, not enough to exactly live large. So that's what I was suggesting. Um, I, I'm someone who thinks that working is a positive thing and that uh, getting more people uh, into environments where they're excited to work is the goal. 
Uh, one thing that does make me sad is that if you look at our labor participation rate, it's low and it's been declining for years and years and years. So when people look up and say, hey, uh, Yang, UBI, it's going to keep people from working. And you look up and be like, hey, look around you. I mean, we've been on this track for years and years and years and the labor market's fallen apart. Like it, like last I checked, it was in the low 60, 60s in terms of percentage of people working. It's comparable to El Salvador and the Ukraine. And that's right now. Wow. So at this point, the horse is out of the barn and the horse is like running around. <laughs> Why do you think that is or what do they attribute that to? I mean, uh, the, there are a lot of explanations. I, I think that we've been going through this economic transformation and it's kicking more and more people to the curb and you're not reckoning with it appropriately. Um, you're also seeing substance abuse go up, depression yeah. go up, like like all, like people are dropping out. And, and right now I do want to say like this pandemic is miserable. It's a very tough time. People are leaving jobs because they've just had it. They burnt out. I, you know, I, I understand and get that too. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of factors right now, but if you look at the last number of years, uh, we're, we're anomalously low uh, across developed countries. And I think that's driving a lot of the problems, um, both economically and politically. Yeah. One of the things that I really love that you address is healthcare. And I, I don't understand why one party doesn't just run on that because it seems like something that every person in America struggles with, no matter which side of the aisle they're on. And it affects people trying to navigate the healthcare system or even there's just no transparency. It drives me insane. If Our system's trying, the worst. It is. It's crazy because we have great medicine. You know, there's I, I've been there's so many things that are good. We have great doctors, we have great medicine, but the, the way you have to navigate the system and the different, obviously different levels of that system, depending on where you fall economically are, they're so different. I was volunteering with the elderly for pre pandemic and I never really thought very much about retirement because I thought, well, I thought I'd be dead by 27 a and B it just, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, you're like, well, I'll figure that out when I get there. And it never occurred to me. And then I was, there was a, a man that I would volunteer with and he was in a very, like a state housing kind of, and then a woman who was very good with her money and worked in the postal system and she, but she'd saved and was ready for retirement. And the level of difference in their care was so crazily different I, like it made me panic. I was like, "Oh crap!" Oh no! Like, I gotta be like together. her. <laughs> I at least better start saving right now because it was it was so crazily. I mean, no, you couldn't even compare the two. Um, and I just that is that bums me out. You know, seeing seeing the circumstances that that some people are in just because they. I don't know. Yeah. The, the it's going to be a lot of people too. Uh, yeah. And I agree with you that uh, most of us agree on overhauling the healthcare system. Um, uh, th this is one of the corruptions of the duopoly, in my opinion, where, and thank God for Bernie Sanders just running on Medicare for all and then like breaking the seal. Where the break like, the yeah, glass ceiling. Say, you know, yeah. We, 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 should, we should do that. Um, because uh, to, to me, it's common sense that we should be heading in that direction. Uh, and most Americans agree. I mean, now more than ever, too. You look up 
um, like tying healthcare to employment makes less and less sense now. Uh, yeah, it never but, made but, sense to me. I, oh, I always had private healthcare because I was a freelancer. So I, I just, I, it never, it never made, made sense. sense. It, it's actually a leftover from World War II when there were pay caps and uh, companies started tacking on healthcare as an incentive to work for them. And then we got stuck with that bizarro system. It never made sense. Uh, that, that that's actually in some ways a microcosm of what we're dealing with, Bridget, is that something gets developed in American life and it doesn't make sense, but we're kind of stuck with it. Um, I'm going to suggest the duopolies that too. It's like this duopoly, the founders did not intend political parties. They certainly didn't intend two political parties. Uh, and then they came into existence decades later and they don't make sense. Uh, but everyone's like, no, no, you're stuck with it. It's like, well, do you think things are working well right now? No, no, no. But you're stuck with it because the other yeah. guys. <laughs> I've been told that our system was structured this way. So I don't know. I don't. And I don't know enough to argue one or the other. Because You I can definitely call bullshit on that. Like the, the, <laughs> like the like George Washington's farewell speech was like political parties bad. John Adams wrote in 1780, two parties would be an evil. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like like uh, the Republican Party doesn't even exist until like, <laughs> like the 1850s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, like all the shit's made up. Yeah. It seems like it fuels this whole media complex, too, that we just can't break out. They need each other so badly, and it's so hard to break outside of. of you and me, Bridget, independent media, independent Substack. political thinking, <laughs> yeah. a shelter for the homeless, the forward party. It's not left or right. May it be a shelter for you all and uh, shield you from the partisan appeals uh, yeah. and, the, and the anger and rancor and the, the dismay and the divisiveness. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I hope I, you know, I have a lot of, I try to maintain that optimism. I, I do. I really do. Even though I see everyone getting hyperpolarized and radicalized and like increasingly the column I wrote yesterday was all about, I mean, I really have nothing to offer but my own confusion, but just how I feel like, and I don't know if this is a, a if it's like a, a bug or if it's a feature is that I, the, I just feel broken down by everything being politicized, everything. Yeah. And it's just broken me down to the point where I don't know what to believe. I have no faith in any institutions. I have no faith in any authority. I have no faith in my local government to take care of my own safety. I'm in California. I have no, I have zero respect for any of the like Nancy Pelosi's or the all these politicians who have just enriched themselves. That's another thing I don't understand. How can you how is there not in, like trading laws for politicians? <laughs> it seems like something that should not be allowed. How is Nancy Pelosi so rich? I don't understand. You're like it's supposed to be a public servant. It doesn't feel like anybody's serving the people. It feels like they're serving corporations. I feel like the banking system is totally screwed. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And so I can only imagine, I don't know how the average American family is even paying for groceries right now. I just, I, I stay With up at night and stare at the ceiling, you know, like how, how do you even begin to fix this? And like you said, all these, like the hundred, I'm a, like, as I mentioned, a recovering in recovery. And that 100,000 overdoses, I, I was so upset for days. Just that that number, that could have been yes. me or many of the people that I know. Yeah. And that seems like a symptom of all of the things going on, not just the pandemic. This was happening before the pandemic. Yes. 
Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, there's, I, I don't know, do we have to like hit some crazy rock bottom to find our way out? Or are we at rock bottom and just don't know it? Uh, I think that things are going to get very rough uh, over the next several years. That's um, what Jonathan Haidt said. <laughs> yeah, like, he was like, it's going to be really bad for 10 years. I was like, great. <laughs> it's going to be rocky going for a while. And then hopefully we'll, no, maybe we'll make it a little bit less rocky and maybe we'll be able to build something positive. Um, certainly Jonathan is going to be a big part of that. I know you will too, Bridget. Hopefully I will be. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep building the tribe uh, and give people a place to belong. Um, you've done that for a lot of people already and uh, you beat me to it. I'm, I'm grateful to you. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you a bit better. Yeah, I wanna ask you the same two questions I ask everyone at the end of my podcast. What is your biggest defect of character? My biggest defect of character is that I get very, very hard on myself at times. Like I don't enjoy any success. <laughs> I don't, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think when I was a kid, I used to joke about how if like I had an Anna test, I'd feel good for like 30 seconds and then I'd, I'd feel this emptiness thereafter. Maybe it's um, an immigrant thing, um, but I think that's my biggest character defect. It sometimes makes me not a great uh, husband, uh, father, partner. You have to let it land. That's what people always tell me. You've got to celebrate because I'm, I'm very similar. You have to celebrate your wins and all this stuff. I heard a podcast with, I forget who it was, but he said the same thing, similar thing. And he said that... Um, it was the day his first book came out and he's like, I, he booked a like maintenance on his car and his wife was like, what are you doing? It's your first book. And he's like, just another day, babe. I'm going to the mechanic to get my car fixed. And I really identified with that. It's like, she was like, you, you're allowed to be excited and give yourself credit for stuff and, and let things land as my therapist says. <laughs> what is Good your, like yeah. <laughs> What's your um, biggest asset other than your just amazing optimism that I turn to for strength? <laughs> oh, thank you, Bridget. <laughs> um, my, my greatest asset is that for some reason, good people want to work with me slash put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> like there, there are so many amazing people that, uh, decided to make my campaign their own. Uh, the first person I think of um, is my wife, Evelyn, who really does put up with a lot. Uh, there have been so many people that have made me successful that don't get the kind of credit that they deserve. Uh, you know, it's just like an unfortunate feature of um, the way credit gets assigned. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, it must have been uh, Yang when, you know, there, there are a lot of people um, making it happen. So that's like my greatest asset is that I I'll say this about myself. I just want shit to work and I don't care about who did what or, or how. And I think that there are good people that are attracted to that where they're like, okay, if I want to do my best work, Yang will be into that. And Yang like doesn't care about credit. He doesn't care about, um, uh, Glory, uh, he's all about just trying to accomplish goals. That's, I think, maybe the best thing about me. And that, that's that's definitely something that was, I'm drawn to your kind of practical application of 
trying to make society better <laughs> instead of just all of the rhetoric and nonsense. You definitely cut through that. One question I did have is the forward party something are you planning on running in 2024 or is it just you might you're just trying to start a party and then maybe find someone else to run is that or is, is there a plan for it so the ford party's short-term goals are to try and transition a number of states to open primaries so it's not just you know democrats or republicans that are able to vote um, and that has to happen in 2022 for us to just take shots at it um the plan in 2024 is TBD. Uh, I'm not being coy. It's just where we have to see what happened in 2022. We have to see what the landscape looks like. Yeah. Um, I, I will suggest that I think that the country could use an alternative uh, to the two major parties. And if it's not me, it would be someone hopefully that I'm excited about um, supporting uh, but I'm open to doing whatever uh, that includes running and includes not running and supporting someone else. Uh, it, it's like what I said before. It's like, uh, you know, you just have to try and figure out the best way to accomplish your goals. But I'm I can visualize right now the uh, probably Biden Trump rematch or the oh, Kamala, God. or the Kamala Trump uh matchup. oh god and and i think if you i would say a solid 20 to 25 percent of americans in, in that situation would look around and being like what are my other choices what are my yeah, other choices yeah. and then if, you, then if you had someone credible they'd be like all right let's head this direction yeah and one last question what can the average person do who might be interested in helping you or supporting your ideas or helping to build this. Because one of the things that I have noticed is the lack of infrastructure, like you mentioned, for that third party. Um, what can somebody do locally to try and help that process along? Oh, the best thing you can do is go to forwardparty.com, uh, sign up. We have volunteer opportunities everywhere. You can start your local chapter. It could be at your school. It could be in your town. Uh, you know, you could wind up with like a local town official who is a forwardist, which has already happened in uh, Pennsylvania. So super grateful. Um, but yeah, go to forwardparty.com, sign up. Uh, you can donate five bucks. Uh, it's not about the money. It's just about raising your hand and saying, we need something better than, <laughs> than what we're getting right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if, if we get enough Americans and start this wave, we can create a real alternative to the duopoly that right now is not serving the people at all. There are dozens of us. Dozens of us. Dozens of millions, <laughs> you mean, Bridget. Dozens of millions. But We're, yeah. I mean, <laughs> wait, what, what is that quote from? The dozens of it's us. It's from uh, like... Arrested Development. It's like my, <laughs> <it's> my <laughs> go-to gif. Ever. Oh, God. it's I. That's the show that I just, again, you, Arrested Development, when I need to feel just some positivity or laugh, that show is just so brilliant. I'll just watch the first three seasons on repeat, but... That episode's one of my favorites where he's like, there are dozens of us. It's my favorite <laughs> gift. I'll use it like weekly um, <laughs> because there are dozens of millions of us. I really appreciate I hope this is not our last time talking because I still want to talk to you about so much more. And I know that we occupy such a um, similar uh, you know, we're the mushy middle or the mushy center in this landscape. And 
I really do appreciate your voice, your optimism, your ideas. I just appreciate that if nothing else, you're trying something different. At least you're trying to break through and do something different. And I know I'm not alone. So I, where can everyone find you other than Forward Party, where, where you just mentioned to go, just yeah. online? Yeah, Andrew Yang on most okay. social media uh, platforms. As Bridget just said, I, I'm pretty upbeat on them. So if you need to pick me up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like when I'm really in the despair and I see the back and forth or there's like, and you know, the weirdest thing about being independent is when you are, and maybe this has happened to you, but you'll something, a news story will break. And it's one of the ones where everyone retreats to their their tribe. And it's like living in two Americas simultaneously. You're watching this I think Scott Adams always says two Americas, one screen, you know, it's just a very strange, surreal feeling where you're like, I don't belong in either of these movies. I'm so alone. We're going to create our own movie, Bridget. You can write the script. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I will be talking to you more. You too. Check out Bridget Fantasy. Where can (laughs) people find you, Bridget? Oh, everybody can find me at Bridget Fetacy on pretty much all the social medias. And if you go to Fetacy.com, we have a little, um, it's like our center for the politically homeless. Um, and it's just, it's like our little paywall place where we all have actually really cool conversations and post recipes. <laughs> it's, it's like the nicest place. It's an oasis for me online. It's really actually quite remarkable. That sounds delightful. Uh, I think you're going to get some new members. Fantasy.com. Oh, thank you. 